0: Beginning in verse number 18 of 1 John chapter number 3, the Bible says, "'My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before Him. For if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him.' Because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. And this is His commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. And he that keepeth His commandments dwelleth in Him, and he in Him. And Hereby we know that He abideth in us by the Spirit which He hath given us. Notice chapter 4 with me. Beloved, believe not every spirit. But try the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world. Therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the Spirit of truth and the Spirit of of error. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would have liberty tonight. I pray that we'd yield liberty unto you, Lord, and yield liberty unto the moving of the Holy Spirit. Father, so oftentimes it seems that we pray, Lord, that, uh, that you would give us liberty, and I, I think very often, Father, that you're waiting on us to give you liberty to work and to move in hearts and to stir. And I pray, God, that you do and accomplish in us that which only you're able. Take your word now, Lord, you've given it to us by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost and the preservation of your providence. And I pray, Father, that this word, as it sits whole and perfect before us tonight, that you take your word and apply it to your people through your Holy Spirit. Father, we'll be sure to give you all the glory because surely it belongs to you. Father, we love you tonight. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, last week, we studied through several verses in the third chapter of First John. And we looked last week at uh, the thought and the truth of how that love uh, for the brethren is a proof that we have truly been born again. Uh, the Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost uh, sheds abroad in our heart the love of God when we get saved, when we are born again. There is a running theme throughout the book of 1 John, and it is a theme of two families, the family of God and the family of Satan. There is no question that every single person in this world belongs to one of those two families. There's no middle ground, there's no in-between. And by the way, it's not always the religious people that belong to the family of God either. Many of them still belong to the family of Satan, because though they may have religion, they may have reformation, they may have renovation, they've never been regenerated and redeemed. You see, the thing that changes your family association is you were born into that one family, the family of Satan, when you were born. Now, I was born into that family as well. You say, well, that's pretty extreme language. Well, you're going to have to uh, side against our Lord and Savior because He used that language when He spoke of the Pharisees and said, you are of your father, the devil. So this is Bible language when we say this, that a lost person part of the family of God. You were born in or part a lost person is part of the family of Satan. You were born into that family when you were born the first time. You say, how do we remedy that, preacher? Well we have to be born again. That's the only way that can be remedied. And whenever that takes place and that is not a process, that is an act that God uh that God provides and performs in our hearts and lives when we yield unto him and look unto him in repentance and faith. This is not a progressive thing. You're either born again or you're not born again. You're either part of the family of God or you're not part of the family of God. John is very clear in teaching this truth. And he begins to use the love of the brethren as one of the proofs. And as we come into the verses that we've read tonight, I just want to say a quick word about the few verses that we read in chapter number 3. Now again, he's trying to give confidence and assurance to this little group of believers Uh, from whom another group had departed and began to persecute them. This group that began to persecute this small group of believers were known as Gnostics. They believed that they had an extra scriptural revelation from God, something that God had given them that God had not given anyone else. And uh, we still have this same thought process and same ideals today. In much of uh, Christianity, falsely so-called, is based upon uh, some man's vision or some man's ideals or uh, some sort of voice that he heard, and this, that, or the other. My preacher used to always say, "It maybe you eat too many chili cheese fries, amen? But uh, much of Christianity today can be based upon that kind of, uh, if you want to call it nonsense, you can. I'll let you be bolder than I'll be. But the truth of the matter is, we found in 1 John that the basis and foundation of true biblical faith is the Bible. That's the only foundation. If we're going to have the foundation that God would have us to have, the only foundation we can have is the Word of God. That's what true Bible Christianity is based upon. And uh, John, as he's been dealing with this, and he's been giving proofs that a man is saved, proofs that a man is not saved, He gives love as one of the chief proofs because this group of Gnostics had departed from them, had turned around, began to persecute them, treat them maliciously, uh, cast them off. And basically, John is saying, listen, don't be like those folks. The reason they act that way, the reason they hate uh, the brethren is because they're not of God and they do not know God. Uh, He writes unto them saying that they do know God. He says it explicitly over and over again. He says, I've not written unto you because you know not the truth, but because you know it. And he says in verse 18, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Now I want you to notice verse 19. He says, And hereby, well, what is that word hereby? Meaning by this, by our attitude and by our habit, uh, habitual, if we could say it that way, uh, act of love towards one another, by our treating one another in love, hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts Before him. Can I tell you that one of the greatest things, if the devil ever makes you doubt your salvation, one of the greatest things you can ask yourself is, do I have a love for the people of God? Because it's a surefire proof that you know God if you have the same heart that God has in loving those that belong to him. Christ said this, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, that you have love one for another. There is no place for Christianity without love. And there is no place for love without Christianity. They go one in the same hand in hand with each other. But I want us to notice this phrase that he uses, assure our hearts before him. He expounds on it in verse 20 by saying, for if our heart condemn us. Now I'm going to go ahead and confess to you, there have been times in my Christian walk when my heart has condemned me. Could I say this in a way that I think most of us would understand? Have you ever uh, woke up and you just didn't feel saved? Sure. Sure i felt like that before. Times that I have thought to myself, how could I be saved if I feel this way? How could I be saved if I think this, if I think that? And i felt like my heart has condemned me. And you know, the Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. We like to rejoice on that, but then we stop there. And if you read the rest of that verse, it says, Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. I'll tell you right now that one surefire way to cause doubt in your heart and life is to live according to the flesh, if you're a believer. Because your heart will condemn you. Because the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things, and who can know it? But John gives us this confidence. He says, if our heart condemn us, uh, he says, God is greater than our heart (laughs) and knoweth all things. Aren't you thankful your salvation's not based on how you feel? There's plenty of times I don't feel saved. Plenty of times I don't feel right, don't feel good. And let me tell you something, friend. You stay in this thing long enough, you're going to find out that there is an emotional battle that is coupled with the spiritual battle that is waged upon us every single day. And if you have spent any time in the Christian walk, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, you know what it is to wake up and just feel as though something is wrong, feel as though something's out of kilter feel as though maybe you're not hitting on all eight pistons, however you want to describe it, but there's just something within you that you feel like something's wrong. You say, Preacher, does that mean I'm not saved? Well, I don't know whether you're saved or not, but God is greater than our hearts and knoweth all things. If you've ever truly put your faith in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter how you feel, that's not going to unsave you. Nothing can unsave you. Nothing shall separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he gives them this confidence. Well, why did he say that to them? Well, I'd say it was pretty disconcerting when they had this group that broke off from them and then began to turn around and look at them and say, well, if you was really saved, you'd be following us. And John says, listen, your salvation is not based upon whether you're following them. Your salvation is not based upon what you feel. Your salvation is based upon your faith in Jesus Christ and Him saving you from your sins, which if you've placed your faith in Him, is a definite action that God did and performed in your life. He goes on to elaborate. He says in verse 21, Brethren, or beloved, excuse me, Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. Boy, there's nothing greater than having that confidence towards God. Uh, Could I put another word with that word confidence? I think it will help us understand it. Can I put the word communion? And I'm not saying the word confidence and communion are synonymous, but I'm merely saying this. Many times that confidence that we have with God is manifest through the communion that we maintain with Him day in and day out. That confidence that we are on holy ground with God based upon the finished work of Calvary. That confidence that no matter what the devil may tell us, it cannot undo what Calvary did for us. He says... If our heart condemn us not then we have then have we confidence toward God whatsoever we ask we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight now if you just read verse 22 and don't read verse 23 you're going to be all flipped turned around and messed up and this is why because he defines what that commandment is he says in verse 23 and this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another as he gave us commandment. You say preacher there's a lot of things that don't fall within those categories. No. No, in fact you'll find that pretty much everything in the Christian walk falls in one of those two categories. Do you remember what our Lord said to the rich young or to the uh scribe that looked at him and said, "Which is the greatest commandment?" Now we think of the 10 commandments in the Old Testament, you know. But actually there was over 600 commandments all throughout the Old Testament. And there's many things that never really cross our minds. I mean, a lot of these commandments, you're never going to see them chiseled in rock on a, on a court, you know, courthouse steps or anything like that. But there was over 600 commandments. And a scribe looked at our Lord one day and, and said this, which is the greatest commandment? And the Lord said, this is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. And love thy neighbor as thyself. And then he said this, on these two hang all the law and the prophets. Well, isn't that right there what Christ or what John just said to us here believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another even as he gave us commandment. you see if we can get our mind wrapped around those two it's going to cause us to live like a Christian if we can learn how to love God and love one another it's going to really change our lives you know that you'll find that nine times out of you know the book of Proverbs says this only by pride cometh contention you know, I quote that verse a lot, and this is why I quote it a lot, because my flesh needs to hear that quoted a lot. Amen? Because that tells me that anytime there's problems, there's pride somewhere. You know what pride is? Pride is loving and preferring ourselves above another. That's what pride is. Pride is the indulgence of the flesh in what it thinks about itself. And so any time that there's been a... Contention, it's because someone's loved themselves more than they've loved their neighbor. It's because someone's thought more of themselves than they thought of Jesus Christ. You see, if we could just wrap our minds around those two things, we'd live right. Do you remember what the psalmist said? Uh, The the psalmist spoke of how that God would give us the desires of our heart if our mind and heart was fixed and stayed upon Him. Do you remember when He said that? You know what that means? uh, Some people have said, well, that means that He'll give us the desires that we should have. And I believe that that's true, but I believe we're sort of splitting hairs here. Let me tell you why. You know what one of the commandments is? To love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thy soul, and thy mind. If we love Him more than we love us, then we're going to want what He wants more than what we want. Why do you think it is? It says, and whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him. Because if we're loving Him more than we're loving us, we're only going to ask for that which is going to glorify Him. I'll go ahead and tell you that in a very practical way, I don't always live up to this. And I've, I've got just a sneaking suspicion that if we knew everything about your life, you don't always live up to it either. But when we are living up to it, then we can have this confidence that when we pray to God and ask Him for things, if we're desiring what His heart desires, He's going to answer. He's going to give them. Look what he says, and I, I just wanted to hit those as bullet points. He says in verse number 24, He that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in... Him in who dwelleth in God and he in him who God in him. So if you keep his commandments, you dwell in God, God dwells in you. How does that happen? Hereby, we know that he abideth in us by the spirit which he hath given us. I'll tell you that in this day of grace that we live in, every single child of God has the Holy Spirit of God indwelling them, perpetually and permanently dwelling within them. Christ said that He would give the Holy Spirit to us, that He'd never depart from us. And let me tell you one of the great proofs, if you're not living for the Lord, uh, that you're a child of God, is that you're convicted over sin. You're aware when you've sinned, and you know that it's wrong. It's not to say you always confess and forsake it. Not to say I always confess and forsake it. But John says, how can we really know that we belong to the Lord? Because He's given us His Spirit to dwell within us. And His Spirit beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. You see, when I sin, God lets me know that I've sinned. God lets me know that I've done something wrong. And if you're born again, He'll let you know when you've done something wrong too. Again, that doesn't always mean you'll be obedient and mind the Lord in it. and I don't always do that, but there's never any question. I mean, just the, the moment that I sin, God always lets me know that I've done something wrong. He makes me aware of that. Well, how does he do that? Through the conviction and convincing of the Holy Spirit in my life. And he's going to use this verse as a segue into a separate thought that I want us to spend a few minutes on tonight. And that is this idea of the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, again, if you remember this in the context of who John's writing this to, this goes right hand in hand. Because this group of believers had just had some people that they had loved dearly, that they had fellowship with, that they had broke bread with, that had turned around walked out of their congregation and ceased to walk with them and ceased to adhere to the Scripture and follow Jesus Christ. And they are just bewildered by this. They don't understand what's happened. They don't understand why it's happened. And furthermore, they don't understand if they're on the right side of this thing or the wrong side of this thing. And it's funny because after 2,000 years of Christianity being in in one way or another quite mainstream, we've come to a time in Christendom now, and I don't even like to use that word, but I'll use it because you understand it. We've come to a time in Christendom now where the waters have become so murky and where the teachings have become so vague that these truths have an application for you and I today more than they've ever had. We live in a whole world that's plugged up to each other. You know that? I can take my phone out. I can, I can listen to any kind of sermon I want to. I can find any kind of preacher I want to. I, I can find any kind of teaching that I want to. How do we know what's right how do we know what's wrong? I, I can turn on the TV and I can flip through and I can find preachers of every flavor. How do I know what's right? How do I know what's wrong? If you don't like this church, you can go down the road to the next church, and you'll find one a little bit different. Or if you want to go the other direction, you can find one lots different. How do we know what's right? How do we know what's wrong? John is dealing with this, and he begins by giving us this truth. Believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Let me ask you something. Do you believe a man can be led, filled, and guided by the Holy Spirit of God. Do you believe that? hope that you do. The Word of God teaches us to be filled with the Spirit. Why then would it be such a stretch if we believe that the Holy Spirit can fill, anoint, and use a man to believe that evil spirits could also fill, anoint, and use a man? John is giving us this truth that there is a spiritual realm with which we contend. And you'll find this consistent all through the Word of God. Paul wrote and said that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, so on and so forth. Uh, We wrestle uh, against spiritual warfare. We are in a spiritual warfare. And just as there is a Holy Spirit, who is uh, what we would call the third person of the Trinity, who is absolute God, and there are also other spirits... The Bible talks about, he maketh his angels spirits and, uh, you know, speaks of them as uh, flaming ministers. Why would we not also believe that there are evil spirits in this world that are leading and guiding and seducing mankind to believe things that are contrary to the truth of the re- revealed word of God? You see, the Bible teaches this plain truth. And John says this to a group of church-going people in the first century, that had exposure to the apostles in one way or another. He says to them that even in that time there were false prophets gone out into the world. We live in a world that is rife with false prophets today. Everybody, we have never been more religious than we are today, and we have never been more anti-biblical than we are today. Everybody has a religion Everybody has a belief system, maybe one that they have uh, adopted from someone else or one they have concocted in their own minds. But this world is not short on religion. It's everywhere. And yet never has there been a more vehement hatred for the things of God, for the word of God, for the people of God, for the son of God, for the spirit of God than there is today. There's false prophets gone out into the world today. We need to be aware of this. You say, "Why do I need to be aware of this preacher? I've got a church home. I, uh, you know, I hope that that you know you, you have confidence in your pastor, at least to some degree." I'll tell you why: because you've got a television, you've got a computer, you've got coworkers and friends and loved ones, and they've got uh, computers and they've got uh, TVs, and we're all plugged up one to another. And there's a lot of noise in this world we live in. We got to be careful how we discern it and decide what we believe about it. There is almost no other quality that the New Testament church today lacks more than the quality of scriptural discernment. The ability to look at something and decide based upon the Word of God whether it's valid and of God or not. We are absolutely bankrupt of it in this day that we live in. We have traded in all of the specifics and the doctrine and the purity of the Word of God for the generic, and for the vague, and for that which is pleasing to mankind, we have traded it in today for the sake of compromise and for the sake of agreement. And yet we don't find this to be the pattern of the New Testament church. John said there are false prophets in the world, and here's how you know. He says, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Now, as we read that, I'm going to confess to you that when you read it, when you read it fast, I've been taking, uh, so looking at some online stuff for speed reading, you know, and, and the ability to read faster and more and consume more. And sometimes we get in a habit when we read the Word of God of just brushing through it. And when you read that, you think to yourself probably, well, that encompasses everybody in Christianity. Because you couldn't find very many people that don't uh, confess that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. You couldn't find very many, but now wait a minute and let's examine it. Word of God specific. Let's stop and consider that every, every word in this blessed book carries weight and has a specific purpose. And let's ask ourselves what's really being said here. Every spirit that confesseth. Now that word confesseth, that means to agree with God about something but it also means to make known the reality of something. Isn't that what a confession is? If I was to come to you and say, listen, there's something I've got to confess to you, you would assume that that I'm going to bear truth and honesty to you, wouldn't you? And so, first off, we have to understand... That this is not talking about people that can only give a lip service. This is not talking about people that just slap this on their statement of faith because it's going to help in selling books or DVDs or CDs or conference tickets. We're talking about people that honestly believe what John's about to say. You say, how can we know that? We can tell that by a person's life and by a person's teachings. We can tell that by the consistency of their message. Let me tell you something. It would amaze you sometime to get on the Internet and to search and to find out some of the things that some of the biggest names in quote-unquote Christianity, which to them Christianity is a commodity, and I'm aware of that, but some of the things that they believe. It would amaze you, and I'll give you just three, just right off the top of my head. I could give you more, but I'll give you three. Joel Osteen is on record as saying that he does not know where uh, Muslims or Jews, Orthodox Jews that have rejected Christ, he does not know where they go when they die. He said this to Larry King in a 60-minute interview. He said, Larry, it's not my place to tell people whether they're going to hell or not. God help us, friend, if it's not for the men of God to be able to have enough biblical discernment to tell people whether they can know that they're saved or not, and how they can know if they're saved, then who's it up to? I would say this, it's not just preachers that ought to be able to tell people that, but it's every single person that uh, that, that uh, claims the name of Jesus Christ ought to know enough about their Bible to take a Bible, open it, and say, this is how you can know whether you're saved or not. I would also point out uh, another one that everybody loves, Joyce Myers. She can preach better than Olsteen can, you know, she really can. She believes that Jesus Christ died and went to hell and paid for your sins in hell by taking your punishment in hell. That's heresy. Do do you know why that is heresy? That is heresy because that implies that the blood of Jesus Christ was not enough to pay for your sins, but he had to go into hell and pay for your hell and suffer in hell. When he said, it is finished, it was finished. Jesse Duplantis, he's the whitest brother you'll ever hear. Amen. From Louisiana, I heard Jesse. This I heard with my own, uh, with my own ears. Uh, I heard him on TV make this statement. He said that Jesus Christ had to battle against the flesh in the same way that you and I do, implying that Jesus Christ had a sin-fallen flesh. That's heresy. That's all it can be defined as is, is heresy. So you understand that a lot of these people, the message that they get up when you see that little 30-minute uh, spot on TV or hear something on the radio, that's not necessarily all that they believe. And the consistency of their message can determine to us whether they truly believe it or not. Anybody can get up and, and, you know, preach a sermon that sounds good for five or ten minutes. That's why I preach for two and a half hours most of the time. That way you know I'm legit. Amen? But anybody can get up and do that. The question is, what is what is the consistency of their message? You see, he speaks of those confessing. Look at what else he says. He says that Jesus Christ... Now, we could pause there and spend the rest of the time, and I won't spend all of it, but I will say this. Christ is an Old Testament title. It is the New Testament word for the Old Testament word Messiah. And so to say Jesus Christ is to imply that Jesus was the Christ and is the Christ. To imply that He is the promised one. That He is the one that bore our sins upon Calvary. You see, when we speak of Jesus, that is His human name. And you'll find actually that none of His friends, none of those that loved Him ever called Him Jesus. They called Him Master, they called Him Lord, but they never just called Him Jesus because that was His human name. The angel said, Thou shalt call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. That would have been His common name that people would have known Him as. So I think part of what John's implying here is this very same Jesus that you've heard about, that was born in Bethlehem, uh, that lived his life in front of all men, that worked miracles, that went to Calvary, that died in our place, this same Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, who is the fulfillment of every Old Testament prophecy concerning the Messiah. And then he says this, Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. Now, you say, what does that say other than the fact that he was made flesh? The word come determines to us that he was not—he uh, did not become existent, but that he was manifest. You see, when you and I, when we were born, uh, or I would say at the moment of conception, we began to exist. We were not incarnated into this world. We were born into this world. But Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is God eternal. He did not begin to exist when He was born. He has always existed. And so what John is speaking of, you say, preacher, that's nitpicking. Surely John didn't mean all that. Well, I don't know. John was the very one that said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then you know what he said? And the Word was made flesh. Not the Word was brought into being. Not the Word began to exist. The Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. No, I think very seriously this is what John's saying. I think he is recognizing the deity of Jesus Christ. I think he is recognizing the eternal nature of Jesus Christ. I think he is recognizing His incarnation. And then when he speaks of come in the flesh, he is speaking of him being the one that was manifest for us. The Bible says that uh, that he came to take away our sins. So you see, really what John's saying here is a mouthful. He's not just merely saying that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. He's saying a lot more than just that. When you really look at the words and consider what they mean, what's the contrary of it? And every spirit that confesseth not. In other words, everyone that is not willing to honestly make this claim, everyone that is not willing to go to this length in the confession of who Jesus Christ is, says he's not of God. Then he gives us an interesting statement. He says, and this is that spirit of Antichrist. Whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. John has already spoke about the Antichrist in chapter number 2. And John is very clear in chapter number 2, in fact, I'll read it to you, uh, where he says this, "...little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. So John is not dismissing the truth of a singular Antichrist, a man of sin, a son of perdition, a person singular uh, that will be the head and the leader of a one-world government and one-world empire in the last days. He's not dismissing that. But what he's saying is that the spirit, the attitude, uh, the motto, if you will, of that empire and of that kingdom is already at present in work, at work in this world that we live in. Can I say to you, and I'm not going to say a lot about it because I said it back when we taught through chapter 2, but can I say that if we're ever going to all sit together and hold hands and sing Kumbaya, they're going to have to do something about Jesus Christ because He is the singular divisive figure and person in the world today. If the Muslims, if the Christians, if the Mormons, if the Jehovah's Witnesses, if the Buddhists, if the atheists, if everybody's going to come together in a one world union and government, they're going to have to do something about Jesus Christ because he is divisive. Some people say, no, he came to bring everybody together. Let me tell you what the problem with that statement is. It directly contradicts what he said. He said, I am come to send a sword and a fire. And what will I if it already be kindled? He said, I'm going to turn households against each other. Read your Bible. That's what he said. He said, I'm going to turn uh, fathers against uh, sons and mothers against daughters. I'm going to split this thing wide open because of who I am. That's what he said. So they're going to have to do something about Jesus Christ. They've got to get rid of him or at least the teachings of him, the ideals of him, the focus on him. They've got to do something about that if they're going to get everybody together in one spot, one place, one ideal, and one system. So it's already at work today. Much of it is uh, based upon this idea, and you see it today. I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. You can sit and talk with a Muslim about God, and they don't get upset. You can talk to a Muslim about Jesus, they won't get upset. Let me tell you something. Muslims have more respect for the name of Jesus than the average Christian does. I'm serious. I you'll sooner hear a New Testament church going Christian take the name of Jesus in vain than you will an orthodox Muslim. They believe him to be a prophet. And just as they'll kill over just about any of their prophets, they would even kill over him. But let me tell you where things get difficult. When you start saying, no, he wasn't just a prophet. He was the Son of God, God in the flesh. He is the preeminent one to whom all glory and power has been delivered up and all judgment has been committed unto. He is the one. That's where you'll find disagreement with Islam concerning the person of Jesus Christ. So it's not that they have to dismiss Jesus altogether. What do they have to do? They have to demote him. They have to degrade him. They don't mind saying that he is a good teacher, that he was a good man. They don't mind the idea of the meek shepherd from uh, Nazareth. Uh, They don't don't, uh, have a problem with the Galilean carpenter. They don't have a problem with that. But now when you start saying He is the way, the truth, the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by Him, that's when you divide people from yourself. That's when you divide people. And so the belief and teaching that He is the Son of God, God manifests in the flesh, must be done away with for a one-world system. And so this spirit of Antichrist is already trying to subvert these Bible teachings, even in the day that we live in today. Why do you think there is such a motivation to degrade and demote the nature of Jesus Christ as to being on common ground with you and I? Let me tell you something, friend. I'm glad that He's a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. I'm glad that though there is no other that is so high and holy, I'm also glad that there's none other that's so meek and lowly. I'm not trying to dismiss uh, the condescension of our Savior in becoming our sin for us. But let me tell you something, friend. He is not on the same level as me and you. He is the only begotten Son of God. He is holiness manifest. He is the righteous one. He is the all knowing and almighty one. And we need to keep that in mind. That's why there's such a motivation to focus on the empathy of the Savior with us in our experiences and to try to uh, disassociate and de emphasize the holiness of Him and His exaltation in much modern day Christianity. They've got to bring Him down if they're going to all agree. It says in verse 4, and I'll read these two verses and touch on them and we'll close. Year of God, little children, and have overcome them. Now, who's John talking about? Well, he's talking about these believers, and he's talking about those that are persecuting him. But let me say that even beyond that, this can be applied to you and I in this day that we live in. You know, there's times we feel like the world's going to overwhelm us. I'll tell you right now, you turn on the news, you turn on the TV, you start looking at at the influence and the muscle that that politics and Hollywood has, and it's easy sometimes to feel like you're sitting all alone, like there's no one that really has put their faith in the Lord, feel like you're all alone, like uh, you've gone lost your mind and everyone else is the same ones. And it's, it's easy to feel sometimes very isolated as a follower of Jesus Christ. And I'm sure they felt isolated. But John says, no, you're of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now, who's he talking about? Well, when he says he that is in you, he's talking about the Holy Spirit of God. And when he's talking about he that is in the world, he's talking about the prince of the power of the air, the God of this world, Satan. And what he's saying is this, no matter all that Satan may try to do, he cannot thwart and subvert the Holy Spirit of God that lives and dwells within you. He says in verse 5, They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. Boy, you know, isn't, isn't that what you see in the prosperity preaching that is so prevalent in Christianity today, quote-unquote Christianity? They are of the world. You ever, looked at their, you ever looked at that, what they're worth? A lot of them could be in, in, uh, you know, Forbes magazine for the money that they rake in. A lot of them, you'd be amazed. And in ministry and having preacher friends, I hear about a lot of these things. I know a lot of these things that a church member may not know. But you'd be amazed what most of these big-name preachers will charge a church for them to come in and to bless them, quote-unquote, with their presence. I'm talking tens of thousands of dollars, not counting the fuel for their private jets not counting their five-star hotel room. They're of the world. I'm not saying it's wrong to have riches and wealth. God bless you if you have it. But when that's what you're in it for, that tells me something. You cannot serve God and mammon. Either love the one and cling to the other, or uh, or love the one and, and hate the other, or cling to the one, despise the other. It's one of the two. So you know what they do? They're of the world. Therefore, speak they of the world. It's interesting to me, and I'm going to just hammer on this prosperity gospel for just a second. It's interesting to me that so many could be duped by preachers claiming that the earmark and the sign and the acid test of holiness and fellowship with God is worldly goods. When our Lord and Savior, the Bible says of him, that the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Foxes have holes and the birds there have their nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. So what I'm saying is this, they speak the message that the world wants to hear. What's everybody after in in this world? They're after money. Money and more money. Money so that they can build barns, so they can store their money, so they can build bigger barns and store more money. And that is the driving force behind the world that we live in. So the prosperity gospel gives them exactly what they want. They speak of the world. Therefore, what happens? (laughs) The world heareth them. It's no wonder. It's no wonder that they are so lauded and applauded and praised and promoted. They're speaking a worldly message to a worldly group. And I fear that one of the things we're seeing today in modern day Christianity is scores of uh, of hundreds of thousands of churches that are packed to the gills with people that are lost and undone without Christ. And what what has drawn them is what's needed to keep them there. They draw them with rock concerts. They draw them with prosperity preaching. And what they've done is they wanted to go out and drag a bunch of goats in and expect them to be sheep when they got there. It doesn't work that way. No, they are of the world, so they speak of the world, and the world heareth them. What about us? Verse 6, we are of God. Now, who's the we? Well, I think that we could say that John is speaking about the we being this church and him. I think we could say that he's speaking about the we being him and that church and us today that know Jesus Christ. But I think in a strictly historical context, when John says we, he's speaking of the apostles. Because he says, we are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, I want you to remember something as John writes this. John says, he that heareth us. In John's mind, and I don't know how much John was aware of how God was using him, but my suspicion is this. John did not know that what he was writing down was inspired scripture. You might believe differently, but I don't believe John was aware of that. I think John was aware that he had apostolic authority and that he had been commissioned of Jesus Christ to go out to preach the gospel and that there were particular signs and wonders following him and the other apostles that would not continue through the church age. We've seen that. Uh, you know, there's many of the things that, uh, things like speaking in, in tongues, although I don't think tongues ever meant gibberish. I think tongues referred to a known language in the world, but I do believe that uh, there were people that God had supernaturally endued and endowed with the ability to do that. But that has ceased to exist because we have that which is perfect. So when John says, he that heareth us, I believe that we could understand that today is this. He that heareth this. This. That's the us John was talking about. We are of God. This is of God. He that knoweth God heareth us, heareth this. He that is not of God heareth not us, heareth not this. You say, Preacher, how do I know if a man is accurate, if he is, has the spirit of truth or the spirit of error? Let me give you one simple acid test that is always true. How does it line up with the inspired Word of God? If it is contrary to the Word of God, it is the spirit of error. I don't care how many uh, visions they've seen, dreams they've had. I don't care how many voices they've heard. If it does not line up with the Word of God, it is absolutely the spirit of error. Preacher, how do I know if a man's preaching the truth? Well, that's the wonderful thing. Truth doesn't have anything to do with what comes out here. Truth has to do with what's been revealed here. Sanctify them through thy word, or through thy truth. Thy word is truth. This is how you know. This is why the Roman Catholics did everything they could to suppress the Word of God for hundreds and hundreds of years. Do you know when it was that, that, that man was brought out of the Dark Ages? Do you know when it was that man was brought into the, into the light, socially, uh, socially speaking? When Mr. Gutenberg developed his press and the Word of God began to be printed John Wycliffe said this, or William Tyndall, one of the two, and I'll close with this. He said, by the grace of God, I hope that every single plowboy has a copy of the Word of God. He, through his translating efforts, was a big part of that happening. But I'll tell you right now, this is the thing that we measured against. This is the absolute rule and authority in what we believe. If it doesn't measure up against this, it doesn't matter how flashy, how good it sounds... Does it measure up against the word of God? That's how we know the spirit of error and the spirit of truth.